right. Jeff Salzman here. Welcome to the Daily Evolver. A special thank you to those of you who are tuning in live uh, on the Integral Life YouTube page or the Facebook page called Developmental Politics, which is sponsored by the Institute for Cultural Evolution. Okay, so what we do here at the Daily Evolver is look at current events through the lens of integral theory or the lens of cultural evolution. And we also use current events to explain integral theory. <laughs> so it sort of goes back and forth. And one of the ways I do that here is by looking at various intellectuals and cultural thought leaders who I think could benefit from a more integral view. And that's most of them, <laughs> as much as I respect them. And I've done uh, episodes on Yuval Harari and Sam Harris and David Brooks and many others. And today I wanna to focus on really one of the giants of intellectual thought leadership. And that is Francis Fukuyama, who is a professor of political science and economics from Stanford. He's best known for a book that's very controversial, but I think holds up in the end. It's, it's a book called The End of History and the Last Man, which was written in 1992, shortly after the fall of the Berlin Wall and the Soviet Union, et cetera. And it, and it argues that there is a, a, a evolutionary movement towards liberal democracy and free market capitalism. And that with the end of these autocracies that we may be signaling, signaling the end point of human history. And, um, you know, of course he's criticized because China's gone ever more authoritarian, at least in this view. And of course, Russia is the poster child for uh, regression in, in this moment. But I do think that uh, the, basic idea, at least in the larger scope of history, holds up in certain ways. And he refines it in a new book that he has just put out called Liberalism and Its Discontents, which he describes as describing the challenges to liberalism from both the right and the left. And he's getting a lot of publicity now because the books, I think, comes out tomorrow. And there's some advanced expert excerpts, which I will refer to here. And also a big article that he published in the Wall Street Journal. I think it's called, it was published in the Wall Street Journal last week. And it's titled, The Long Arc of Historical Progress. The subhead is interesting. The subhead reads, a democratic world order is not the inexorable outcome of historical forces. But even amid setbacks, societies are clearly evolving towards equality and individual freedom. And I think that sums up his thesis pretty well. Uh, two big points here. One is that societies are evolving towards equality and individual freedom, even despite setbacks, like we said with Russia uh, and um, you know, still, would you rather live in Russia under Putin or Stalin or the czar? Would you rather live in China under Xi or Mao 
or the emperors, you know. Even Kim Jong-un is more humane than his father, Kim Jong-il. So there is this large movement with you know, certain exceptions, exceptions in some ways that are complicated and prove the rule, like Afghanistan, like maybe Syria, uh, and we could talk about those another time. But the big point is that that arc of history is arising. His second point of his thesis is that democracy, at least the way we see it in the West, is not necessarily the inevitable political form. And again, I'm not sure that's not true in some large sense that future societies will express the will of, its pop, of their populaces. But it's clearly not true in the near and med medium term here. And so I'll let F Fukuyama explain himself. All right, so here's from the article in the Wall Street Journal. And here's how he opens it. He says, in a recent article in The Atlantic, the historian Anne Applebaum wrote that, quote, there is no natural liberal world order and there are no rules without someone to enforce them, unquote. And this is Fukuyama, he says, her practical point was clear. Only by actively fighting back could the world's democracies save themselves from Vladimir Putin and the world's other newly assertive autocrats. But she was also making a deeper point, that there's no broad pattern to history or possibility of historical progress over time. Outcomes are simply the result of actors duking it out over and over again. As she tweeted about the piece, quote, there's no arc of history Nothing inevitable about either democracy or dictatorship. What happens tomorrow depends on what we all do today. And again, Fukuyama, he says, in a narrow sense, Ms. Applebaum's argument is incontrovertible. There is no underlying historical mechanism that brings us inexorably towards a liberal world, world order. And he'll go on to argue that it's the development of social structures and technical structures that do it. Uh, but um, there is no underlying historical mechanism. And this takes me back to an episode I did a while back on Yuval Harari, where he talked, he said basically the same thing. He said, the liberal world order did not result from a divine miracle or from a change in the laws of nature. It resulted from humans making better choices. Make good choices. I remember that movie where the mother lets her daughter out of the car at school and says, make good choices. Um, and Harari goes on, he says, unfortunately, the fact that it stems from human choice also means that it is reversible. The future depends on the choices we make. All right, so here's where I would pause with all of these people and argue that there is an underlying historical mechanism. And, you know, maybe even a divine miracle, the, the miracle of evolution, the, the, of, you know, the fact that a big mess of hydrogen turned into us and it only took 13.8 billion years. So even human evolution itself, the, the ways in which human beings have lived over our history, 
those laws of human nature also change with stages of development. And, um, you know, that's a really a core uh, premise of integral theory or the theories of cultural evolution. And I think one of the ways that we can understand it is by looking at the patterns of growth in individual human beings. Uh, do two-year-olds choose to become three-year-olds? Do they become three-year-olds because they made all the right choices? Or was there something else involved? Do 10-year-olds change themselves into being 11-year-old or 12-year-olds? Can a 12-year-old go back to being a three-year-old? Can they choose to be a three-year-old again? Well, occasionally. <laughs> In fact, I noticed that 60-year-olds can occasionally revert back to being three-year-olds. But the center of gravity, this growth, this, this, um, uh, this more coming out of less, this higher centers of gravity keep pulling them back to you know, their, their stage of development that they're in. And that's true of cultures as well. And that gravitational pull is a pull towards goodness, truth, and beauty. That's, that's a premise of integral theory. And it's confusing to people because this growth towards goodness, truth, and beauty is achieved very often by means that are not good, but bad, not true, but wrong, and not beautiful, but ugly. And, you know, that's sort of hard to wrap your head around. Anyway, let's go back to Fukuyama and we'll continue his argument and make some comments as we go. He writes, for instance, Mr. Putin's attack on Ukraine demonstrates that many people in the West had grown complacent about the peace and prosperity brought about by the liberal order. They didn't think that anyone would challenge that order certainly not with tanks and rockets and outright territorial aggression. And it is clearly true today that the liberal order requires believers in democracy to actively support it in Ukraine and around the world. And this is a big theme for Fukuyama. And this is where I think in a way his critics are right that Fukuyama doesn't necessarily see that liberal democracy, Jeffersonian democracy as we have it here, uh, is the final state. But he does sort of think that modernity, that stage of development that we call modernity, rational, so forth, is a final state. And it's currently being under attack by both the left and the right, uh, by the ethno-nationalists on the right, and from the wokesters on the left. And so I'll get to how he explains that, but that's where he's going with this. Okay, so, but in the meantime, he argues that there is an arc of history or an arc that does bend towards some form of justice, he writes. Social scientists have addressed this question for years under the rubric of structure versus agency, as these are the two sources of historical change, structure and agency. Structure 
refers to broad forces like technology, social classes, climate, and geography as determinants of political and economic outcomes. And that's the third person, you know, the it's, the world of it's, technology, the world, geography, guns, germs, and steel. And agency, and this is Fukuyama again, by contrast, refers to the decisions and actions taken by individual human beings, whether leaders at the top or actors at the grassroots. The idea of an arc of history does not deny the importance of individual agency. It just sees that these actions within conditions are set by larger structural forces. So here he has sort of first and second person, individual agency, and of course, cultural agency, which is sort of the communal version of that. And then this third person structure. He says, since at least the late 18th century or the 1700s, uh, late 1700s, an important current in Western thought maintained that there was indeed a universal and progressive historical process unfolding over the centuries, as opposed to earlier views of history that maintained that history was cyclical or simply a random process. And I have to say that strikes me a bit odd. I wouldn't say that pre-modern stages saw history as cyclical or random as much as they saw it as triumphalist, you know, that, that uh, it was a process of hopefully the triumph of my people over the competing people, the infidels, or the, the return of some king or savior or God and an installation of a paradise, you know, defined by the, the, the mores of my culture. But at any rate, I won't quibble about that. Because uh, he, he gets into, I think, what is a pretty good argument about the movement of history. And this is in the Wall Street Journal. This is, you know, is a big mainstream thinker. And, you know, it's nice to see this described as he does. And I'll, 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 I'll quote him here. He says, if we step back from day-to-day -day headlines and take a long view of human social evolution, there clearly is an arc of history. Early human communities organized themselves into bands of a few dozen individuals, generally all relatives of one another. They lived initially by hunting and gathering. But as some settled in fertile valleys and developed agriculture, their societies grew much larger. These bands were replaced by what we commonly call tribes, in which groups claiming descent from a common ancestor could scale up to encompass thousands of people. This form of organization appeared in widely separated parts of the world, including China, India, the Americas, Middle East, and Europe. And here he's tracing that movement from you know, the dawn of humanity in what we would call the archaic stage to the tribal stage or beige to purple or magenta to purple, depending on all your colors. But at any rate, archaic, archaic to tribal. And then he goes on and he writes approximately 8,000 years ago, a different type of organization then appeared, the state. 
in which power was centralized in a single authority. States also appeared in geographically scattered regions of the world, the Nile Valley, Mesopotamia, the Yellow River Valley in China, and the Valley of Mexico. Over time, states proved to be much more powerful than tribally organized societies. And that's this move into what we would call the red or empire or warrior stage of development. And of course, this continued complexification of scale continues. And again, why, you know, is it structure? Is it agency? Integral would say that there's something powering both of them. And that would be emergence or growth or even intention, cosmic intention. At any rate, here's Fukuyama. He says, state level societies grew enormously in scale and could encompass millions of inhabitants. To get to this scale, however, they needed to move away from patrimonial authority and make use of impersonal institutions, bureaucracies that seek to treat people uniformly as citizens. The first world society to make this transition was China, which had developed the foundational elements of a modern state, a merit-based merit civil service, centralized taxation, and uniform weights and measures by the time of its initial unification in 221 BC. It would take European societies another 1800 years before they too started to evolve modern states. And I like that because he's taking the whole world into account. This is not just a Eurocentric accounting of history. And, you know, you can see where, you know, every part of the world seems to lead in a certain stage of development. Africa is where we woke up and discovered we were human. And then we go out in, in Mesopotamia and then China's where we get the merit-based civil service and so forth. And this is a move into what we would call traditional societies. And, you know, at this point, the, the culture has become sufficiently complex that there are de facto centers of power. There are people who run the farming and taxation and the storage and the shipping and the merchants and organizing armies. And the king has to account to these other power centers. And as he writes, so while states had always made use of law as a means of enforcing the ruler's will on populations, now the law also begins to constrain the ruler. There has to be some law that transcends the power of the king. And um, I was just watching a documentary on King Henry VIII, and it's the strangest thing. Um, you know, I think this is the 1600s, if I'm not mistaken. And, uh, you know, he cut off two of his wives' heads, but he had to do it through legal means. He had to go and, you know, argue with his case and imprison them and you know, have them executed according to laws. And it's a strange moment in history, that whole era, of course. So anyway, we go on then. Now we're moving from this traditional stage into modernity. And Fukuyama, Fukuyama describes it. He says, the next major transition 
became, began in the 1600s and 1700s in Western Europe, driven by a complex set of cultural and economic changes. Law slowly divorced itself from political authority and became embedded in independent legal institutions. The rule by law turned into the rule of law. And then he writes, there was moreover a critical cognitive shift that took place in Europe around this time, which was the development of the scientific method. That method assumes that there is an objective world beyond our subjective consciousness, one that can be apprehended experimentally and ultimately manipulated to serve human purposes. This produced continuous technological change and allowed the modern economic world to emerge. So there is an arc of history, as he writes. The second question is where is it pointing? And in particular, is it pointing towards justice? Fukuyama describes justice in two senses. He says, first, it's a high degree of social and political equality. So none of these you know, big class structures, political equality. And second, at least in theory. And second, a political system that protects the autonomy of each individual so that a person's ability to pursue a flourishing life is possible as they see fit, free from violence, war, or coercion. And again, this is the theory. It wasn't really in practice in many ways, still isn't. But this theory, these ideas of justice, were all part of a doctrine that came to be known as liberalism. And this is a, you know, really key to Fukuyama. As he writes, the liberal narrative of historical progress was closely tied to the belief that people were rational and that better education and access to information would make them more critical of unjust authority and open to diverse ideas. This scenario is not playing out in today's China, where an increasingly well-educated population seems to be content living under a dictatorship. And again, I would quibble with this. I mean, I would say, aren't contemporary Chinese people more critical of unjust authority and open to diverse ideas than they were in, you know, the Cultural Revolution in the 60s? Uh, you know, again, it's not whether they're there, it's a whether of, it's whether it's how, how far they've come and what's the trajectory. But I think I'm in some ways making his point in spite of him. Of course, yes, there are setbacks and discontinuities in evolution. And absolutely true. That's true of, you know, the Cambrian explosion, the asteroid, you know, we, we tend to, um, again, goodness, truth, and beauty by means of their opposite very often. He writes, it's important to recognize that history is not a linear process in which we make slow but steady improvements every year. Rather, it's marked by huge discontinuities with periods of peace and spreading freedom interrupted by giant wars and setbacks. One needs to step back and take a long-term perspective. While it may seem counterintuitive at a moment when Europe is consumed by a war between major powers, 
A, a number of scholars, such as Steven Pinker, have shown that aggregate levels of violence have fallen dramatically over the millennia as human societies have evolved from hunting and gathering to our modern liberal world. And it's, again, his, his wording, he, he talks about this moment as being a moment where Europe is consumed by a war between major powers. And talking about Ukraine, of course, but again, you wanna have Europe consumed by a war between major powers? Try the 40s or World War I. So, and, and, and strangely, again, this, um, what I say, supernatural, divine, uh, this, this growth that's built in, this teleology that's built in, now has Germany and Japan, uh, which were the perpetrators of World War II, as two of the most peaceful, prosperous countries ever in human history. And, you know, may we see, may our children and grandchildren see such a thing happen to Russia as well. So anyway, so then enter post-modernity. So we got into this liberal modernity. And so now we're at post-modernity. And he writes, the scientific method with its manipulation of nature produced the modern economic world. Scientific approaches to health led to huge increases in longevity. Military technology conferred huge advantage that states could use to defend or conquer. He says, precisely because modern science was so intimately associated with existing power structures, it engendered a prolonged critique that questioned whether its dominance was justified. In a series of brilliant books, Michael Foucault argued that the language of modern science was used to mask the exercise of raw power. The definitions of mental illness, the use of incarceration to punish certain behaviors, the medical categorizations of sexual deviancy, None of these were based on neutral empirical observations of reality, but rather they concealed the operation of broader power structures that subordinated and controlled different classes of people. So the supposedly objective language of science simply encoded the influence of the power holders. <clears throat> For instance, the whole enterprise of neoclassical economics has presented itself as a neutral application of the scientific method to the study of economics. But this did not prevent them from falling prey to the attractions of money and power. This is the postmodern critique. Deregulation, privatization, a strict defense of property rights were pushed by wealthy corporations and individuals who created think tanks and hired big name economists to write academic papers that merely justified policies that were in their own private interests. <clears throat> so that's the postmodern critique. So he writes about, again, going back to this liberal modern project, he says, at the heart of the liberal project, lies the assumption that if you strip away the customs and accumulated cultural baggage that every culture has, each of, that each of us carries, you'll find an underlying moral core that we all share 
and can recognize in one another, sort of universal morality at the core. But this idea has come under attack with the growing awareness of identity's complexities. Individuals are not the autonomous agencies of liberal theory. They're shaped by broader social forces over which they have no control. Knowing is not an abstract cognitive act, but is intimately bound with doing, acting, and being acted upon. And so this is the postmodern critique of liberalism. And he says this critique proliferated in the United States from the 80s onward and is being used to attack the racial and gendered power structures of our time. It argues that the search for human universals fundamental to liberalism was simply an exercise in power, one that sought to impose the ideas of a single civilization on the rest of the world. And then he writes, so that's the, that, that's the attack on liberalism from the left. And he goes on and he says that the postmodern critique of liberalism has now drifted over to the right. White nationalists today regard themselves as a beleaguered identity group. During the pandemic, conservatives around the world used the same conspiratorial critique of modern natural science that had been pioneered by the left and critical theory, arguing that public health recommendations of social distancing, masks, and shutdown did not reflect objective science but were merely motivated by hidden political agendas. And in this way, he argues, the right are, agrees with post-modernity that power is all there is. Uh, and he writes, the problem with this, of course, is if there are no truly universal values other than power, then why should one want to accept the empowerment of any marginalized group? This is the critique from the right. It would, it would simply replace one expression of power with another. This is precisely the argument that's been adopted by right-wing extremists in the United States today who fear that they will be replaced by people of color. These extremists are not fighting to preserve a liberal order, they're fighting to preserve their power in a zero-sum struggle with other ethnic groups. And thus, these are the two versions of modern identity politics the one from the left, which is arguing for the marginalized, and the argument from the right, which is arguing for my culture over your culture. And then he sums it up by saying, this is not to say that identity politics is wrong. These are the two versions. But that we must return to a liberal interpretation of its aims. Liberalism, with its premise of universal human equality, needs to be the framework within which identity groups struggle for their rights. And, um, and there you have it. That's the, the basic thesis from Fukuyama. And again, I would say that what Integral brings to this party is, is not the idea that we need to return to a liberal interpretation of reality, but that all three of these interpretations of reality, that the interpretation from the right, that my country and culture actually has a karmic 
um, legitimacy, a louche. It's an identity I don't want to lose. I don't want to lose Russianness. I don't want to lose my Ukrainianness, my Chineseness, my Americanness. These are important, and I don't want it to be homogenized and blenderized away by modernity and you know logic and science and you know godless secularism. And then on the right, I'm sorry. And then on the left, this idea that there's a karma of history that has left out huge segments of the human population of color and sexual fluidity and all of these things that uh, liberal that progressivism wants to include and so you know welcome to the culture wars and welcome to you know this i think this view that modernity most people find themselves anchored in this you know modern liberal view and then the necessarily extremes, but the extremes in 20 to 30% on the right, the 20 to 30% on the left are, in a sense, struggling to increase the scope of the view so that we can include the truths of all of them. And, uh, you know, even though they all hate each other, we integralists love everybody. So, <laughs> That's my stab at Fukuyama. Check out his book, Liberalism and Its Discontents. Okay, again, thank you to Integral Life. Thank you to the Institute for Cultural Evolution. Check them both out. Support them. These are good organizations doing good work. And um, yeah, Jeff Salzman, Daily Evolver, signing off. And we'll see you this uh, time next week. Thanks, folks.